Thank you for joining us for the Lessons from First Naz podcast. Hey, a couple of uh, a couple of things that I want to talk about before we turn our attention to the scriptures. The first is that I want you to know that our formal search for uh, a youth pastor is underway. I've been talking to people, I've uh, posted the job, and I also want you to know that we're not just looking for a youth pastor. After careful consideration, the church board and I have decided that we are going to pursue a couple who will join us in ministry, uh, a youth pastor and a children's pastor to help give some uh, of the kind of leadership to children's ministry that we've enjoyed in youth ministry around here for years and years. It's time for us to take that next step. It's going to push us a little bit financially, and we're counting on the whole church family together to say, because we believe this is where God is leading us, uh, we'll help make it happen. Church board is budgeting carefully and doing all of that, but the search is on, and the search is difficult. And so the reason that I'm telling you about it today is twofold. Number one, I just want you to be informed. It's your church. I want you to know what's happening. Secondly is because I am absolutely dependent upon your prayers in this process. We are not simply looking for people who can meet all the requirements on a checklist. We are looking for the people that God is guiding to us. We believe that he already knows who it's supposed to be, that he uh, has a will in this matter, and he's trying to guide this church to those people and those people to this church. And the truth is, there's a whole lot of human being involved in it. And with all the human beingness comes all the frailties and all of the uh, weaknesses and, and all of that. And I'm one of the human beings. And so you get my frailty and my weaknesses in the search process. And so I ask you to pray for wisdom for me and for the church board and that God will open up the hearts of the people who, um, who he's chosen so that they can let go of the place where they are now. Let go of the people where they are now so they can come, get their arms around us, and us get our arms around them. Would you join me in praying about that? Okay, good. Yeah, that's, it's worth that, right? It's a big step for our church family. Good. All right. I don't remember what the other thing was, so it'll just have to keep, okay? Um, on the outside chance that you might be interested in how a pastor's week goes, you know, a week in the life of a pastor, I'm going to tell you about the last week of my life. Uh, Laura was gone for part of it. She had left uh, middle of the week before to go to Kansas City to help her parents celebrate their 50th wedding anniversary. So she was gone for about a week, so gone for the first half of this week. And uh, that's a very bad thing if you live at our house because it means that... uh, that I was running the show around there, and Laura left good notes, and she left some prepared meals, and it still was, was up to me. And so it meant that um, I, I cooked, and I, and I cleaned, and I did some laundry, and I, for the most part, made sure that the kids were where they were supposed to be, except for the last day when the entire train came off the tracks, and it was a complete wreck for all of us. So my week was, was busy with all of those things, right alongside my pastoral duties, I studied and planned this sermon. I did some good Easter, uh, good, some good Friday and Easter planning with Pastor Bill. Spent a lot of time with, with people this week, far more people time than office time this week. 
doing some pastoral counseling, helping people settle some conflicts, uh, working on uh, some romantic relationships, those kinds of things. I also spent some time working on job descriptions for the ministry couple that I talked about, and also for a summer children's ministry intern who will be joining us. Her name's Kelsey Kennedy. This is where you do this again. Good. She's watching. She heard your woohoos and and loved it. Okay. I, uh, I read too many emails and texts to count and probably only responded to about a tenth of them. I'm sorry. Okay. And I prayed for you and for the other people in our valley. Alongside all of those things in the last week, I should also mention that I did not sleep with any women that I'm not married to. I did not kill anyone. I didn't steal any of their belongings. I didn't lie about anyone, and I did not sass my mother. In light of all these things that I did and didn't do, I'm wondering, is that good enough to get me into heaven when I die? Read the scriptures with me. One day a ruler asked Jesus, good teacher, well, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus asked him. No one's good but one. God. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. I've kept all these from my youth, he said. When Jesus heard this, he told him, you still lack one thing. Sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. After he heard this, He became extremely sad because he was very rich. Seeing that he became sad, Jesus said, How hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, Then who can be saved? He replied, What's impossible with men? Is possible with God. Then Peter said, Look, we have left what we had and followed you. So he said to them, I assure you, there is no one who has left a house, wife, or brothers, parents, or children because of the kingdom of God who will not receive many more times, many times more at, at this time, an eternal life in the age to come. This is the word of the Lord. You know, among all of the people who believe that there is any kind of a God out there, there is also a nearly universal belief that there's some sort of afterlife for human beings following this one. And for many of those folks, there's also a belief that how we live our lives on this side of the grave will determine what it is that we're going to experience in the afterlife. We believe that life is, uh, in the afterlife, is either going to be a whole lot better or a whole lot worse. Hmm. And most of us are looking for a way that we can lock down some sort of guarantee that we're going to get that better life after this life. You may have a life on this side that you enjoy quite a lot, and yet it has lots of bumps and lots of bruises and lots of abrasions along the way. So there's something in the heart of every single one of us that says, man, I hope the next life is better than this one. We're looking for some guarantee that we'll get the upside of those two options. 
And we want to know how it is that you can get that guarantee. Because none of us feels very good about just rolling the dice and taking our chances and see how it goes at the end of our days. Want that guarantee, you want to know how to find it. The Christian version of this uh, uses some language that most of you are probably pretty familiar with because you've grown up in the United States. Christians believe that the human spirit lives on after the body experiences physical death, but that that spirit will live on somewhere. In, in some specific locale, one of two, we use the title hell to describe an eternal existence in which the human spirit is separated from the God in whom we believe. And we think that that alone, the separation, being separated from the God who made us, would be so painful and withering to the human spirit that it's best described as feeling like punishment or as living death. We use the word heaven to describe the place where human spirits, on the other hand, get to live in close connection, in the unfiltered presence of God. Being perfectly united with God, it seems, would be a perfectly good existence, perfectly enjoyable and perfectly good for us and to us. And it would seem that that's the way to get the guarantee that the next life is going to be better than this one. It's to do the next life with God in lockstep, in close communion with him to be spared from that living death that I mentioned earlier and to be granted the pleasure of living in the immediate presence of God seems to be the very definition of true life. And that's why we Christians refer to it as having an eternal quality to it. We call it eternal life and everybody wants to know how to get it. That's why the the wealthy young ruler in the text that we just read asked Jesus the question, what must I do to uh, lay my claim on eternal life? He wanted to make sure that his life in the future would be better than his life in the present. In that sense, he was no different than you and I. But there's one word tucked into that story that makes almost every one of us think, oh, he was a lot different and so much different that what Jesus said to him does not apply to me. And that word was not ruler. The word was rich. Almost no one thinks of himself or herself as rich. Uh, when we lived in Whitefish, Montana, it's an it's a upscale um, resort community, and it attracts the uber-wealthy from from like movie star and professional athlete wealthy to owners of some of the biggest corporations in America. The top Amway guy in the world uh, lives there. He has a downline of $12 million a month. Month, not year, month. Okay? Guy I knew was working for him as his property manager, and after he had written checks in the hundreds of thousands for sports cars, two or three of them to just lock in the garage because you can't drive them that, uh, that long in uh, snow country. When his daughter wanted a pony and he spent $325,000 on a horse trailer and two Arabians, his, uh, his property manager said, what's it like to be rich? He said, well, I don't feel like I'm rich. It feels like everything in the world's free. Because I can just buy it and there's absolutely no consequence to, to what I can buy tomorrow. The man makes $12 million a month and said he's not really rich. And whatever it is that you make, you probably feel like you're not rich. Almost nobody thinks of himself or herself as rich. Since there's never been any dollar value that's assigned to that word, we always assume that the real rich people are the ones who make quite a bit more than we do. 
So we can argue about whether you and I are rich all day long, but, but if we want to push this discussion back into a place where we can make sense of it, then we're going to have to push it back into the setting of Jesus' day and take as a definition the one that he was thinking when he was speaking to the ruler that day. And in Jesus' day and in his culture and in many places around the world today, it goes something like this. The poor are those who do not have access to reliable sources of food, shelter, and clothing. If you don't have reliable access, or you don't have access to a reliable source of food, clothing, and shelter, can we all agree that you're poor? Okay. Now, there was no middle class prior to America. So, two classes, poor and rich. If poor is, I don't have access to reliable sources of food, clothing, and shelter, then rich was... I have access to a reliable source of food, clothing, and shelter. Congratulations. You're all rich. You just got rich today. Did you feel it? There and just like that quick, you got rich. If being rich feels good, fasten your seatbelts because Jesus had some things to say about that. Be thankful, but as you consider the story, consider the probability that it applies to you because I know that it applies to me. And the story unfolds like this. The uh, rich young ruler approaches Jesus and asks him what it takes to gain eternal life. Jesus, famous for his tricky and difficult answers, said, why are you asking me? And then he makes some statement about God's the only one who's good, and are you saying that I'm God? And then he doesn't take that further. And he turns right around and says, hey, why are you asking me for? You know the commandments. And then for some reason that is not explained by Jesus or the the writers of Scripture, he lists for the guy only five of the ten commandments and recites them to him. Now, like me and hopefully all of you for at least the last week, this guy was able, able to say, I have kept all of these commandments. But unlike most of us, he was able to say, ever since I was a child, I've never done any of those things. Now, either this guy was the world's uh, most righteous man, or he was the world's least self-aware man, or he was a flat-out liar. But for some reason, Jesus didn't challenge the man's claims of righteousness when it came to keeping the law. He accepted the man's claim, and because of Jesus' answer, because Jesus had let the man's response stand unchallenged, two things had to be going on in the minds of everybody else when there was that pause afterwards. The first thing was going on in the mind of the rich young ruler. He's thinking, so I'm in? Sweet. And most everybody else who was listening that day said, oh, man, I don't stand a chance. Because really, how many of us can say that we have not broken any of those commands since childhood ever? Let's do a little show of hands. You can, um, if, you've ever, if you've ever lied or stolen anything or disrespected your parents, um, please raise your hands. And if you've committed adultery and murdered, keep your hands down. Maybe there was a better way to to do that. Then while the man was beginning to kind of congratulate himself over the notion that, that he might be righteous enough to have actually earned eternal life, Jesus said, well, uh, there is this, this one more thing which implies something that I think all of us need to either learn or to remind ourselves of frequently if we've learned it before. It's this. Keeping all of the commandments 
might build for you a deeply satisfying life on this side of the grave, but it will not buy you eternal life. If you were hoping that keeping all of the commandments would earn you a ticket where you could get God over a barrel and get his arm up behind his back where he had to give you what you deserve, sorry, the law cannot do that, even if you kept it perfectly. That guy had kept the commandments, and Jesus said, it's not enough. There's still one more thing that you lack. And as I read it, I think Jesus didn't count very well because he said there's one more thing, and I think he listed two. Take a look at verse 22 with me. Jesus said, go sell everything you have and help a bunch of people with it, and that will store up treasure in heaven for you. But what's the next word? Then. It means that that after the guy had done the first thing of converting all of his net worth into cash and giving it away to other people, there was another thing that the rich young ruler was supposed to do. Jesus said, then come and follow me. Jesus didn't tell him just give away your possessions. He said, give away your possessions and then come and follow me. And I think this can teach us a couple of things too. First, it implies that that kind deeds and acts of service, they're good things. We do a lot of those around here. It's kind of our thing as a church family. We serve. But it cannot secure eternal life for us. If you were thinking about giving the long list of projects you've worked on and the poor people that you've helped to God in exchange for a ticket to heaven, it won't buy it. And it teaches us that eternal life, if it's not found in that, It's found in an ongoing relationship with Jesus in which we actually let him lead and we really do become his followers. Jesus didn't say, keep the commandments, give away all your money and you'll have eternal life. He said, then come follow me and you'll have eternal life. Luke wrote that when the ruler heard what Jesus said, he became very sad. And Luke also said that the reason that the man was sad was because he had a lot of money. You ever wonder whether Jesus' command was just for this one guy or whether it really is the case that everybody has to give everything they own away and take a vow of poverty in order to find eternal life? I think it's a reasonable question. I went to college with a guy who was uh, preparing to be a pastor like me. Is uh, right, right at the end of his junior year, he read this passage, and he said, well, I think God means it. So he literally gave away everything that he had but one set of clothing and his work uniform. He gave away his car. He gave away absolutely everything and um, lived that out in front of us. What seemed to be a relatively miserable existence in front of us uh, that next year. And somehow lost his way. I don't know what happened to him, uh, you know, 5, 10, 20 years later, but I know that somewhere along the way, a bitterness of spirit set in for him and and that, that long, bony, religious finger that points accusingly at everybody else who isn't doing exactly what you think is the right stuff. Before long, the church wasn't good enough for him and, and, and. And still sometimes I have wondered if Jesus was saying that to that one guy or whether he was saying it to all of us. 
I find it interesting that we have no other biblical accounts of Jesus or his apostles teaching that in order to have eternal life, you have to give away what you own. But Jesus said, this guy had to. Why? I, I think this section of the story teaches us that great sacrifice or uber-religious fervor is not going to bring you eternal life either. Because this ruler clearly was a very religiously devout person. But for all of his religious fervor, it did not make him feel secure about his future. Because as soon as he saw Jesus, he had to run up to him and ask him, what's the thing that I need to do? And that's why he sought out Jesus and why he asked him the big question. But this sentence also tells us this. For each of us, for every single one of us, there's a sacrifice that we might not be willing to make. It's easy to say the words, I'd give up everything for Christ. But every one of us has an issue, a thing, a person in our lives that would test our commitment there. That's why big sacrificial acts like giving away everything you own won't buy you eternal life. Because all it means is that money wasn't the thing for you. Because however sacrificial you might be willing to be, every person has a price that ultimately will test them. And God oftentimes will lay claim on that one thing that we believe he has no right to ask of us. Question for you this morning. What is that thing in your life? The non-negotiable, the thing you're not going to talk to God about. What's the one thing you won't give up? The one thing that you think you get to control? What is your anything but that thing? I'm not giving up my career. I won't give up living here close to my family. I won't take a job that pays that little. I want to keep my reputation. I don't want people thinking I'm some religious nut job. I don't want to have to start over. I don't want to have to work that hard. I don't want my my kids to become missionaries and move away. What's the one thing that you don't think you can surrender to God? In the earliest days of our denomination, uh, which was over a century ago now, the Holy Spirit was sweeping through some areas of the country and fanning into flame some real passion and fervor among the people of God. There were sweeping revivals in some communities where masses of people, people in the hundreds and people in the thousands, would come to faith in Jesus Christ and become his followers. There were Uh, a number of traveling preachers who crisscrossed the country and whose preaching was used by God to this effect. There was a man who lived down in Oklahoma and earned his living as a cowboy. His name was Reuben Robinson. Reuben was an alcoholic. He stuttered terribly and was tongue-tied, meaning that that little piece of flesh underneath your tongue on his came all the way out to the end so that the end of his tongue wouldn't move. Tongue-tied, it's where the expression came from so that he couldn't move his tongue freely enough even to say his own name, let alone those of other people or those tricky Bible names, right? And as a result of these these things, Reuben just kind of sank into it. He could manage to say Bud without stuttering, so he told people that was his name, Bud Robinson. He grew up angry at God and angry at people, And he drank heavily to numb his pain. 
One of those traveling preachers that I mentioned earlier, they were called evangelists, came to a community near where Reuben was, was chasing cows. And every night for a couple of weeks, they were holding these revival services in the evening. Reuben decided that he wanted nothing to do with that. And that one night after he got good and liquored up, he was going to go and break up the meeting. So he went to church that night, dressed as he did for work, hat on his head, gun on each hip, and walked into the place. Didn't take them off because he was willing to use them if it came to that. The problem is that when he went to church, he waited too long to do what he decided he was going to do. He listened for too long to the evangelist's sermon. And as a result, God began to speak to him. And that night, Reuben made a decision to become a follower of Jesus Christ. And his heart and his life were changed. He turned away from his addiction. He settled down and he became a good man. After a while, he began to feel, however, like there was some kind of a war that was going on inside of him. He'd become a spiritual person and a religious person too, but but he became fearful whenever he considered his future in the here and now, let alone the, the big question of what happens out there in the afterlife that all of us ponder from time to time. One day, he was out in his field hoeing corn. And he was praying while he was working and telling God all about that tension and that that fear that he was experiencing. And he was praying while he was working. And and for some time, he had been sensing that God wanted him to become one of those traveling evangelists. Really? The stuttering, tongue-tied guy? Hmm. But he just kept thinking about it, and, and he couldn't get away from it, but he didn't dare say yes to it. There was this matter of his speech impediment, and he didn't want to look like a fool, and he didn't think that God could use him in that way, so he'd been resisting, rather refusing, to let God have control of that part of his life. That day in the cornfield, God called him on it, laid his finger right on that thing, and said, we've got to talk. And as Reuben prayed, he sensed God saying to him, when are you going to give me everything? Reuben's account, he said, I've given my heart to you, God. What else do you want from me? He looked around at all the corn in his field, and he said, you want this crop of corn? It's yours. And he still didn't have peace in his heart. So he said, well, what what more do you want, God? And he looked around again, and he saw the tool in his hands, and he offered that to God along with all his other tools. Still no peace. He looked over at the edge of the field, and there was a wagon over there. He said, God, the wagon's yours. Then he saw the mule that had been hitched up to it. He said, the mule's yours. Still had no peace. He felt every bit as torn as he did when the prayer began. Obviously, at this point, tears are flowing freely, and and Reuben didn't know what to do. So finally, he just laid down in the dirt between two rows of corn, and he cried. And as he cried, he said to God, what more do you want from me? I've given you everything I own. And in his account of this event, Reuben said that he pictured all of his possessions in a great big pile and and him pushing them toward God. And when he said, what more do you want from me? He heard God say, I don't just want your belongings, Reuben. I want all of you. And so Reuben said he pictured himself climbing up on top of the pile of things and offered himself and all of it to God. 
He didn't know how God was going to work out the speech impediment issue. He didn't know if preaching would earn him enough money to live on. He just knew that in that moment, God was saying, I want you to let go of all the things that you've refused to let go of. I want all of you. I want all of your heart. Reuben said that when he made that decision, he had this sudden and and overwhelming sense of peace and joy. He's an old country boy, so he put it this way. God ran a river through my heart. Said he, he, I could sense him. He was close. He came so close that I thought it was going to kill me. I finally said, God, you got to back off. I can't take this much of the good from you. His crying turned to laughter and then joy and peace and Reuben got up from that place, and he began to travel the country trying to preach. And God did incredible things through that humble man. He was still tongue-tied. He still stuttered badly, except when he would step into a pulpit. And God would loose his tongue. Still had a noticeable speech impediment. There's some recordings of of Bud's preaching around. Still a noticeable uh, speech impediment. But he was uh, set free by God to do the thing that God had asked him to do. I've heard a few recordings. He still had that peculiar sound to his voice. But there was power in his preaching. And there was power in his living. Because he'd surrendered everything to God. There no longer was an anything but that thing in his life. In the story of the rich young ruler, we're left with the impression that that this guy decided to hold on to his anything but that thing. It was his money. You know, it is genuinely difficult to surrender your life in entirety to Jesus. It is. Some people would say it's impossible. Many of the people in the crowd that day said exactly that, and Jesus looked at them and said, yeah, You're going to need God's help with this. It's impossible for you, but nothing's impossible for God. Undoubtedly, there there had to be people in the crowd that day who turned and walked away just like the rich young ruler had because they thought it was just too difficult, too high a price to pay. Jesus had a, a close friend. Uh, and a follower who, as a young man, tended to be a little bit of a knucklehead. His name was Peter. And as Peter was listening that day to this conversation between Jesus and the rich young ruler and what Jesus had to say about the rich young ruler and your anything but that thing to the crowd that day, and this light bulb came on in Peter's head. He said, hey, Jesus... The other disciples and I, we've, we've done that. We, we've given up our anything but that thing, and, and we are following you. And that's when Jesus looked at him and said, I know, Peter, that's right. And so you are going to have eternal life. The next life is going to be much better for you than this one. But I also promise you that because you've given me everything in this life, I'm going to take care of you in this life. And then the next life gets better. What's a person have to do to get eternal life? 
Each of us who believes there's a God probably also believes there's some sort of existence beyond physical life in this world. And if we believe that, then we hope that that life after is going to be a good life, a peaceful life, a joyful and healthy life, a life in which a bunch of the questions that plagued us and robbed us of peace in this world will finally be answered, that we'll get to to know and be with the God who we believe in while we live in this wrecked world that has a a way of obscuring our view of him. When we consider the question about what it takes to get that, to get that eternal life, there's something in our hearts and something in our minds that really doubts that keeping the rules is going to get the job done. And then when we're really honest, we admit, well, I already blew that anyway because I don't keep all the rules. We doubt that being semi-religious or even super-religious will take care of it either. But let me ask you a question this morning. When I said that what God really wants is all of you, for you to give him all of your heart and your life, was there something in the center of your chest, maybe? Or in the back of your head that said, man, I think that's right. Did you feel something mysterious happening inside of something, maybe it felt emotional, happening inside of you, like maybe, maybe God was laying his finger on something, on, on your heart. If that's what that felt like, that's what that was. Let me ask you another question, too. Are you afraid to give God? You're anything but that. I know what that feels like. But I can also tell you that I know what it feels like to let go of all that, along with anxiety and fear of doing so. Because of that, I can also tell you what joy feels like and what peace feels like, or what it feels like when God runs a river through your heart. God wants all of you, and something deep inside of you wants to give all of you to him. It's the truest part of you. What might possibly be so important, so valuable, that you would let it stop you from gaining eternal life? What's worth that? What is so worth retaining control of for a few more decades that you relinquish eternal life forever? It doesn't seem like a very good trade. I think we all know that the real answer to that question is nothing. Nothing's worth that. Is God trying to have a conversation with you today? Get really honest with yourself about it and, and have a conversation with him as we pray. Julie, I ask you to just come play some, some music, and I'll ask you guys please to stand with me and bow your heads and close your eyes. The bowing your heads and closing your eyes thing is uh, just about making sure that you're not distracted and that the people next to you have that sense of privacy so they can pray. I'll bet that if you wanted to come down here to the altar and pray about these things that, uh, that Pastor Bill and Pastor Dwayne would be willing to, to wait here at the altar and pray with anybody who'd like to do that. You can also take care of it where you are. Like we say before we begin the musical part of worship, I'll say uh, here and now, 
your posture really doesn't prove anything to God, so kneeling doesn't make it more authentic. Also know that you can't hide from God by staying where you are. Because he's in this place today and he's he's moving and he's speaking to people. He's talking to us about our, our anything but that thing. How about I quit talking and we'll listen to him for a moment. Lord, what do you have to say to us today? resisted and I resisted and I resisted. Um, But there was something about taking a step out into the aisle and saying, I'll pray in front of people to deal with my stuff that broke loose my grip on this issue in my life. If you were to come and pray this morning, um, well, you wouldn't be the first because there's somebody already here. Somebody who paved the way for us. It's not just acceptable, but a, but a good thing. If, uh, if you sense that's the necessary step for you, you've got to come out of hiding to, to say to the church family, yep, I'm, I'm dealing with the anything but that thing today. Nobody's going to judge you. It's just going to be a bunch of people who pray for you. Might be some people who take courage in seeing you step out, say, I can, I can go there if other people do. I just don't want to have to go it alone. There are people taking courageous steps and people who courageously remain where they are, who are whose knuckles are white, gripping tightly this last vestige of control in their lives, but who courageously are saying, I'm gonna, I'm gonna pry my own fingers loose if I have to, but I've tried that for years and it's impossible, but but nothing's impossible with God, and they're asking for you to come and wean them from their their hunger and thirst for this thing. Help them give it away. I I don't know what you're doing in this place today. Maybe you're maybe you're speaking to somebody about giving away their wealth. I don't know. I know you're talking to everybody about giving away control of their wealth. I don't know if you're calling somebody to uh, preaching ministry today, but I know you're talking to every one of us about our refusal to speak to others about you and our faith in you. I know that. Some of us are petrified to let go of our of our families. We don't even know what it looks like. What do you mean, let go of my family? 
It might mean that you quit standing in the way of your kid's call. It might mean that you quit talking to them about how important it is to go make money and you decide to let God lead them into something that can actually make a life. your control on your uh, on your time because you've got to have a bunch of me time when a life of service God's beckoning you to it whatever it is today friends I just want to assure you that uh, what God asks of you he will help you turn loose of then he will use you and that thing to bring much glory to himself and deep satisfaction to you. A satisfaction that you cannot know this side of heaven if you hang on to your anything but that thing. So Lord, we stand before you today with, uh, with our palms up. It's, uh, it's us turning loose of, of us, of ourselves, of, of our right to control whatever area of life you, you pointed out to us today. Some of us are laying this thing down for the hundredth time. and Some of us have have never before this hour said, I'll give you total and complete control of my life. I am yours, completely lock, stock, and barrel. I know it it takes one, one yes to you gain entrance into eternal life, but I know a life of of following you means many, many, many yeses. You're asking us, a bunch of us, for another yes today. And so we say yes. What could you do with a bunch of people who really climbed on top of the pile today, God? What might happen in this church and in this valley if if a simple majority of the Nazarenes climbed on top of the pile today. Well, why don't you show us? Because we're doing it. We say yes. We surrender. We say yes. Friends, let me ask you a question. Why don't you open, open your eyes for just a moment? Um... We do this from time to time. Most of the time, we transact spiritual business around here in privacy, like I described a few minutes ago. But sometimes it is a very important and good thing to uh, confess before, the, before our, our brothers and sisters that we, we took another step forward in faith today. If today you climbed on top of the pile, you said, I'll give you my stuff and I'll give you my life. It's yours. You, it's a blank check. You get to fill in as many zeros as you want. You get to cash it whenever and wherever you want, God. Would you just slip your hand up in the air? Everybody look around. See these people who do it because you're not alone. That's right. There's a sea of hands back there. Lord, I give you praise for it, and it encourages me to, uh, to lay down my thing again because I'm a guy who tends to pick up control. I like it. But you're the Lord. 
You're the master. And one more time today, because my friend said yes to you, I I find the courage to do it myself again today. You have complete control of my life. Let's just see where you and your Holy Spirit take us, Lord. I also pray that you'd work in in the hearts of my friends who just couldn't get there today. Why don't you help them with it as they go? I ask in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Friends, I'm grateful that you let me be your pastor. I'm grateful that you let me speak to you from God's word, some some, uh, encouraging things and some very difficult things. And nothing is better for a pastor's heart than when he sees people who say the yes. One more yes to him. So today, just know that uh, I love you. And then I I pray God's peace for you, his continued blessing and presence on your life. So may you go in peace today and always. Amen.